Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Butty in Washington. Today is Thursday, October 6th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. President Museveni apologizes to Kenya for his son's controversial tweets, but critics are not impressed. We are seeing him behave like a little goat that has cut its tether and just running around generally eating all the neighbor's crops, and then he expects to be applauded for that. The Liberian government is sued in the ECOWAS Court of Justice. Malawi unveils the plan to eradicate rising cases of cholera. A Rwanda high court acquits journalists accused of publishing fake news. A candidate in Lesotho explains why she wants to be the country's first woman prime minister as that country heads to the polls tomorrow Friday. A woman understands more those problems than a man. So I believe that it is time that Lesotho has a woman prime minister. And cross-border syndicates are implicated in the search of rhino poaching in Namibia. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni has issued a public apology to Kenya asking forgiveness for tweets by his son, Muhuzi Kanirugaba. The tweets on Monday joked about Uganda invading Kenya, but Museveni promoted his son from lieutenant to general while removing him as commander of the army's land forces, saying he has made a number of positive contributions. Halima Atumani reports from Kampala, Uganda. In a statement Wednesday, Ugandan President Yoram Seveni apologized for what he called meddling in the affairs of Brother Kenya. The statement reads in part, I ask our Kenyan brothers and sisters to forgive us for tweets sent by General Mohosi, former commander of land forces here, regarding the election matters in that great country. Museveni said it is not right for public officers, be they civilian or military, to comment or interfere in any way in the internal affairs of brother countries. He said such discussions should be handled by the peer review mechanism of the African Union and not in public comments. On Monday, Kaini Rugaba joked on Twitter about Uganda invading Kenya. One tweet said, it wouldn't take us, my army and me, two weeks to capture Nairobi. This was quickly followed with, haha, I love my Kenyan relatives. Constitution, rule of law, you must be joking. For us, there is only the revolution and you will soon learn about it. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs responded Tuesday with a statement reiterating its commitment to good neighborliness peaceful coexistence and cooperation with Kenya. In May, Gawaya Tegule, a lawyer, filed a constitutional court petition challenging Kaini Rugawa regarding his politicized social media tweets. Tegule asked the court to charge Kaini Rugawa with treason and said the first son's tweets on regional affairs are hard to fathom. We are seeing him behave like a little goat that has cut its tether and just running around generally eating all the neighbor's crops, stepping on the neighbor's shoes, upsetting neighbor's saucepans, and then he expects to be applauded for that. So with all respect, this is a boy who needs to be mentored. He needs to be advised. He needs to be reined in. Museveni explained that while Kainerugawa's mistake is one aspect where his son has acted negatively as a public officer, he has many other positive contributions. 
However, Christoph Taiteka, a professor at the University of Antwerp on governance and conflict in Central Africa, argues that Kainerugawa's promotion to the rank of general could be seen coming. He cites instances early this year when the army was put on high alert and Museveni held a meeting with the top army brass. Later in July, the army distanced itself from tweets by Kainerugaba that supported the Tigray People's Liberation Front in Ethiopia, saying the tweets were not an official position of the Uganda People's Defense Forces. Teteka says Kainerugaba's promotion to general raises questions about what his father, Museveni, could potentially be preparing him for outside of the military. Does it mean more power or less power for the first son? Um, as commander of the land forces, he did, in fact, he did hold uh, a lot of actual military power. Is it a move by his father, the president, to take him away from, from that military power? Or is it a way to transition him to more civilian responsibilities and hence prepare him for a presidential bid? Kainirugaba, at the age of 48, is now the youngest general in Uganda. Most of those who are ranked as generals fought with Museveni in the 1986 Bush War that brought him to power. Calls to Kainirugaba and his personal assistant went unanswered. But in relation to Kenya, Kainirugaba indicated in one of his tweets that he had met with his father and he indicated some changes would be coming after he scared Kenyans on Twitter. National Unity Platform leader Robert Chagulanyi responded to Museveni's apology by demanding he apologize to what he called countless Ugandans abducted and tortured with reckless abandon, and he questioned whether they would ever get justice. Halima Othmani for VA News, Kampala, Uganda. Campaigning for Lesotho's October 7 parliamentary elections ended yesterday, Wednesday. There are 48 political parties and 2,560 candidates, of which 660 are women, according to the Independent Electoral Commission. The country has been troubled by political instability for years because of the frequent changes of government. Matabani Litzia is the candidate for the HOPE party who wants to be the first female prime minister of the mountain kingdom. She says it is challenging for a woman to run for office in Lesotho for several reasons including lack of finances and because Basotho still do not believe that women who do almost everything in their respective households have the same capacity as men to be prime ministers. But Lesia tells me that she is telling the women of Lesotho that they have the power to change the country on Friday. As women who are not financially that strong, the campaign was not an easy one. It was very challenging, financially and otherwise. And you know, as a woman, you don't get outright support, even from other women, let alone men. So it has not been an easy campaign, I can tell you, Jane. So it has not been an easy journey at all. In fact, I was going to ask you, what is it like to run for an office as a woman in Lesotho? It is very challenging. One, because people still don't believe that a woman has the same capacity as men to run for a prime minister position. So that on its own is a challenge. Regardless of how good your manifesto can be, 
But because you are a woman, there is still that vague doubt that we don't think that women, they can lead Lesotho as a country. We don't even try to think to say there are other countries who have been led by women presidents or prime ministers before. We really believe that a woman is not capacitated enough to lead a country. Everybody believes that it should be a man. So you are running for prime minister? Yeah, I'm running for prime minister. That should be my objective so that my efforts and my resources are geared towards being a prime minister. So what are you telling your constituents in terms of why they should vote for you? What is your platform? For me, as a woman, the message is mostly directed to women. Nobody knows the problems of a family more than a woman. Even if you have a husband, when the husband comes from work, they'll always say, Mommy, what is there to eat? It will never be the other way around. So what I'm telling the women, I'm saying it is time to change the country. In the rural areas, those that serve more is the women, not the men. So I say to the women, myself as a woman, I know the problems that women are facing on a daily basis. We see escalation of crime, abuse of women, abuse of children, abuse of the elderly. All perpetrators most times are men, and there's no legislation to protect women, children, and the vulnerable groups. A woman understands more those problems than a man. So I believe that it is time that Lesotho has a woman prime minister. As you mentioned, there are so many ills in the society. What do you think about the issue of corruption? One of those ills is corruption. Because we've had leaders who cannot honestly tackle the issue of corruption. So if we leave it like it is now, we will never get to where this country will see real economic growth in the near future. There's all the tools, but it is the will of the leader to implement and make sure that they empower the relevant institutions and give them their needed freedom to do the way. If you had to make one reform in Lesotho, what would you want to change? My number one priority would be the political reform and the public service. It is because for me, there is no separation of power between the National Assembly and Cabinet. If we separate the power between the National Assembly and Cabinet and professionalize Cabinet so that Cabinet members do not come from the National Assembly. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And I want to wish you good luck. Thank you very much. Have a good day. That was Machabani Lepani Litzia, a candidate for parliament for the Hope Party with hopes to be the next prime minister of Lesotho. She was speaking with us from the capital, Maseru. The Liberian government has been sued in the Court of Justice of the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS. The suit, filed by the Center for Justice and Accountability and other human rights organizations, seeks justice on behalf of survivors of the 1990 massacre at the St. Peter's Lutheran Church in Monrovia during the Liberian Civil War. About 600 civilians were allegedly killed by Liberian soldiers. The complaint accuses the Liberian government of failure to investigate and prosecute the perpetrators of the attack and provide redress to the victims and their families.
Nushin Sakarati is senior staff attorney for the Center for Justice and Accountability. She tells me that another purpose of the complaint is for the ECOWAS court to force the Liberian government to explain what it has done or failed to do to provide justice for the victims. We brought this complaint against Liberia to bring an argument before a court of law that Liberia has failed in its duty on behalf of victims of civil war, atrocity crimes, to investigate and, where possible, prosecute perpetrators of these atrocities. We've been litigating cases in the U.S. on behalf of Liberian victims. Some of these perpetrators have now returned to Liberia, where they believe it's the safest place for them to escape justice. So we've brought this case before ECOWAS to say that Liberia actually does have a duty to investigate these crimes and is failing to not only do that on behalf of victims, um, but also it needs to implement the legislation necessary to ensure that torture and war crimes are indeed abuses and crimes under their laws. What do you suppose will be the outcome? Well, the ECOWAS Court of Justice has been issuing some really strong decisions on human rights obligations amongst West African countries. Our hope is that Liberia responds to the complaint, explains what it's done to date to provide justice and accountability to the victims, and for the court to issue a decision on what Liberia should be doing on behalf of victims so that they actually get redressed. What exactly will be justice for you or for the victims? I know there's a talk of um, setting up a war crimes court. Yes. Our clients, which is an NGO based out of Liberia, as well as three survivors of the Lutheran Church Massacre, have long been advocating for an internationalized war crime court to be set up in Liberia to prosecute perpetrators that are on Liberian soil. You know, for them, they've been living amongst the people that were the cause of the loss of their family members, the loved ones, the destruction of their country, for them to have faith in their government, for them to be able to move on from these abuses. They want to see justice for these abuses in their country. You know, I asked the question because this is not the first case against the Liberian government. There's another case in the ECOWAS court in which judgment was uh, rendered against the government of Liberia. And uh, it seems that the government has not implemented the decision. So is this complaint you're filing a futile uh, complaint or do you think something good will come out of it? I think it's going to be a really important case to show Liberia what it can do to actually implement the treaties that it's signed and ratified so the court can give guidance to Liberia on how to implement its duties under these treaties, which it's been failing to do. Um, The judgment could also include money damages for the victims, which many West African states have been paying when the ECOWAS court has ordered these damages. So we will be pushing Liberia to do that and provide some form of redress to the victims here. But we also think that this will just be another step to try to push Liberia to actually, you know, move forward on its promises to provide justice and accountability to these victims. You know, we're hoping that the court might give recommendations to Liberia on how it could engage the UN or the African Union in helping it to establish its own war crimes court. Nushin, thank you so much for speaking with us on Daybreak Africa. Thank you so much. Nushin Sakarati is the senior staff attorney for the Center for Justice and Accountability. She was speaking with us from San Francisco, California.
listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Butty in Washington. Today is Thursday, October 6th. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. A 38-year-old Eritrean man accused of trafficking Eritreans to Europe has been extradited to the Netherlands. Reuters says the suspect, whose name has not been released, is accused of trafficking between 2014 and 2020. Dutch prosecutors say that along the way, victims were beaten, tortured, and raped while being held in camps in Libya. Authorities say traffickers also blackmailed Eritrean families in the Netherlands to allow their imprisoned relatives to travel, though many did not survive the crossing into Europe. The government of Malawi has unveiled a six-point national cholera response plan to eradicate the outbreak with 60 days, which has so far killed over 100 people. The country's health minister says the plan should help eliminate all cases before the start of the rainy season, which starts in two months. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre. Minister of Health, announced the revised plan on Tuesday during a joint press conference with the country representative of the World Health Organization, Dr. Kimambo Nemam Losbamaira. The move is in response to an upsurge of cholera, which has so far spread to 22 of the country's 28 districts, killing 110 people. Chiponda says the plan mainly focuses on strengthening coordination among various national health committees. So we're saying we have to strengthen coordination both at national level but most importantly at the district level because uh, the cholera patients, most of them are found in the rural areas uh, where uh, the risks are very, very high because of an availability of uh, good water but also uh, low coverage where you have uh, a latrine. Cholera is an acute diarrheal infection caused by ingesting food or water contaminated with bacteria. The disease affects both children and adults, and if untreated, can kill within hours. Statistics from the Public Health Institute of Malawi shows that as of Tuesday, the country registered 87 new cases for a total number of 3,891. Malawi usually registers cholera infections during the rainy season, but for the past two years, the country has registered no cases of the disease. However, this year, cases started rising during the dry season. Authorities say it is a result of a tropical storm Anam and cyclone Gombe, which washed away water, sanitation, and hygiene facilities in people's homes. One of the contributing factors for the cholera outbreak, uh, it was the cyclones which really destroyed many of the uh, wash uh, facilities in the lower city. Uh, wash facilities, it meant that people didn't have safe water, but also some of the, the latrines were destroyed because of the cyclones. However, Chiponda says to implement the plan, the government needs about 20.6 million US dollars to help contain the disease within 60 days before the onset of rains. She, however, says the country has sourced only about six million US dollars of the needed amount, appealing for help from well-wishers and development partners for the remaining amount. The country representative for the WHO, 
Dr. Kimambo Nema Rosbamaira says the WHO has currently sourced about 2 million doses of cholera vaccine to help Malawi fight the outbreak. I just want to reiterate that our commitment is there. We are highly committed and we see this as a key responsibility from our side to work with the government until we are able to bring this, uh, this outbreak under control. In May, the Malawi government and the WHO rolled out a vaccination campaign to help stop an outbreak of cholera targeting nearly 4 million people in the hardest hit districts. Lamek Masina for VOA News in Blanta, Malawi. The High Court in Rwanda's capital Kigali on Wednesday acquitted three journalists who have been in jail for close to four years for charges that include spreading false information to create hostile international opinion against Rwanda. Eugene Uimana has details. National prosecutors were requesting a 22-year jail term for the three journalists from Iwachu, a local YouTube-based television site. Wednesday marked the end of their trial, which began in 2018. Their lawyer, Jean-Paul Iwambe, says the court's verdict was fair, but it took a long time. He says the journalists were just doing their job. He says that he's amazed by the verdict because the prosecution was pushing for 22 years. But this shows that Rwandan courts are independent and have been able to see that his clients are innocent and that they were just doing their job, which is to inform their audience. The three journalists are Damaseni Mutuimana, Shadrach Nyonsenga and Jean-Baptiste Nshimimana. Many international organizations, including the Committee to Protect Journalists, released the calls for the release of the reporters, citing that the imprisonment would stifle journalism and violate freedom of expression. They were alleged to have committed three crimes. Spreading false information to create hostile international opinion against Rwanda, publishing an original statements or pictures, and inciting insurrection. Rwanda's penal court states that if convicted, the journalist could be jailed up to 15 years. Eugene Uimana for VOA News, Chigali, Rwanda. While Africa is seeing a drop in the rate of rhinoceros poaching, Namibian wildlife authorities say they are seeing a surge in rhino killings in the southern African country. Conservationists say poachers seeking rhino horns for Asian markets are targeting Namibia's commercial farms. Vitalio Angular reports from Vinhook. Save the Rhino Trust CEO, Simpson Urikop, says there are reports that syndicates of rhino poachers from South Africa are operating in Namibia. He says poaching cases are rising, especially in Etosha National Park and commercial farms. It's a problem. Um, the only thing I can say is we have to take more hands with the communities that's in the areas, do more of a um, awareness. Salmon Vermark, who heads an anti-poaching group called Namibia Wildlife Protection, says the group has received two rhino poaching reports in the last four months. The first such cases since the organization began operating in the area eight years ago. Definitely an increase. Um, almost on a weekly basis, we pick up uh, tracks of uh, pr- prospective poachers on the farms that we look after. And, uh, yeah, so that shows. I think the figures uh, that uh, the Ministry of Environment and Tourism has also shows clearly what the what the increases are. There are definitely syndicates operating from here between here and, and South Africa, between Namibia and South Africa. We are not very involved in the in the intelligence and the um, 
the infiltration of, of syndicates, we are mostly involved in the protection of the rhinos on the ground. Ministry of Environment, Tourism and Forestry spokesperson Romeo Munyunda says recent statistics show a surge in poaching, although the latest figures are still being verified. So far this year, Namibia has reported 48 poached rhinos, compared to 43 in 2021 and 40 in 2020. Muyunda also welcomed the recent conviction of preacher Jackson Babi, who is also described as a self-proclaimed prophet in documents from the Gababes Magistrate Court. Namibia is home to the largest black rhino population in the world. Recent statistics given to VOA show an increase in rhino poaching incidents in general, with 48 rhinos poached so far this year. Vitalio Angula reports for VOA News, Ventuk, Namibia. And that's it for this Thursday, October 6th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for being our guest this morning. I'm James Barton in Washington saying, have a great day and be safe 